Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Fun fact for you this morning. Fun fact. If we were to head out together towards the North Pole, and if we relied on a compass as our guide, we could wind up as far as 590 miles off course. This is because the needle of a compass points towards the magnetic North Pole and not the geographic North Pole, or what is known as true north. How many people, and I'm going to be impressed, knew there were two North Poles? The geographic North Pole and the magnetic North Pole. And how about the rest of us who this is all new information for the first time? All right, I, I want to make me feel better. Come on, raise your hand. This is new. Okay. Thank you. Whew. The earth produces this. I learned this this week. The earth produces a magnetic field. Well, I didn't learn that. I knew that. Okay. The earth produces a magnetic field. And the places where the lines of what's known as magnetic induction converge, those are what are called the magnetic poles. So if you're a visual person, if you were to stick a steel rod through the earth, the conjunction of the lines of longitude where the poles pass through the rotation areas of the earth, the rotation axis of the earth, those would be the true north and true south poles that we see on our maps. Okay, These are fixed points. That's the key. In contrast, the location of the magnetic north pole changes over time. Because the earth is round and not flat, magnetic north will vary depending upon where you are on the planet. In addition, since magnetic north is based on earth's magnetic field, it changes. It shifts within a range, as you heard, of hundreds of miles from year to year. And the expression, true north, true north, that expression is based on these variances that navigators and surveyors have to account for on a regular basis. Now, this all becomes relevant <laughs> to the Gospel of Luke as Jesus today begins to teach those who follow him, follow him what true north is in terms of heading in the direction of the kingdom of God. Each of our lives takes a direction. Sometimes we can think we're heading one way only to discover we're off course from where we intended to go. Like magnetic north, there is much in this world, in life on this side of eternity, that attracts us to the point of navigating our lives according to such markers, which gradually and ultimately cause us to drift off course in our relationship with Christ. As we're going to discover, it's only when we keep our eyes upon the fixed position of Christ and follow Jesus as our true north that we remain within the blessings of the kingdom of God. So let's hear from Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible or a phone, the words are on the screen. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And spending the night praying to God, and spent the night praying to God, when the morning call, came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. 
Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because the power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will grow hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage starts with Jesus about to make an important decision. You know, the funny thing is we we often talk and we tend to think Jesus only had 12 disciples. But if we read the four Gospels closely... Even right here in this passage, it becomes clear, initially Jesus had many followers, many would-be students, sitting at his feet under his instruction. But now, Luke tells us, the time has come to cull the herd, as it were, to designate 12 pupils out of that group to become something more than his disciples. Jesus is discerning whom to choose to become his apostles, And the word apostle means one who is sent out in the sense of a a messenger or a representative. From among all of his followers, Jesus is deciding the 12 who will become the first founding fathers, founding ambassadors of the gospel, of the good news he brings, of the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God he comes to inaugurate. And just how significant a decision this become this is becomes obvious. And just how important a decision this is becomes obvious by what Jesus does prior to making it. Did we notice? Did you catch it? it? Went by fast. It's such an important choice. Jesus camps out by himself on a mountainside and pulls an all-nighter under the stars praying. Conversing with God, seeking his father's wisdom and guidance. In this decision. When's the last time you and I spent that kind of time? Gave that kind of focus to our creator? Take a moment and reflect on that. When's the last time you pulled an all-nighter with God? Or even just a couple hours? Or even just 30 minutes? And I'm asking this not to arouse guilt or shame. I'm asking this, I'm pointing to this, to inspire and encourage us. Because, you know, something that I notice is that in following Jesus, we tend to notice the big, momentous things that Jesus does. When we talk about Jesus, we talk about the big things. We we notice the big things. Jesus standing up for those who have been silenced. Jesus interceding and resourcing people in need that others have ignored. Jesus setting the table and breaking bread with outsiders who are being excluded. And these are all big, impressive, meaningful, impactful things But we also do well to pay attention to the little things. The little things Jesus does, which it may appear at first to only there's a passing reference to. I mean, Luke doesn't spend a lot of time here. It may seem like it's no big deal. 
But actually, if we, if we kind of retro, reverse engineer <laughs> what happens, these little things are actually the foundational practices that enable and empower the impactful work that Jesus accomplishes. In other words, and particularly related to what happens here, if prayer, if abiding and conversing with God, if prayer was necessary before Jesus made big decisions, if prayer, abiding and conversing with God, was necessary before Jesus acted in the Lord's name, if prayer, abiding and conversing with God, was necessary before Jesus taught others about the way of the kingdom, does it make any sense for prayer, having that kind of relationship, that kind of abiding conversational relationship with our creator, does it make any sense for prayer to be any less of a priority for us? Could this be our prayer life, something so, so seemingly small, could our prayer life be the reason why the decisions we make end up not being good ones? Not being healthy, wise, fruitful? Is it possible? The insight we're looking for, you know, when we're scratching our heads or maybe banging them against the wall, the insight we're looking for, the vision, the clarity, the strength we need, you know, to face that challenge, that obstacle, that opportunity before us, is it possible that that Vision and clarity and strength before us is right within our grasp. It's right within our reach if only we'd make the time. If only we'd make the effort to reach up, to reach out to our Heavenly Father instead of remaining stuck within the limits of our own heads and hearts. Having chosen 12 of his followers, 12 of his followers to become apostles of the kingdom of God, Jesus takes them back down to where the rest of his disciples are waiting. And in the time that Jesus has been gone, a large crowd of people from all over, including regions outside of what were normally considered Jewish territories, they've gathered alongside Jesus' disciples. And Luke tells us these folks have journeyed, like many before them, they've journeyed for two reasons. One, to hear Jesus speak, and two, hopefully, to be cured of whatever is ailing them. Whatever is ailing them physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And once again we see, and it won't be the last time, Jesus heals those who are sick. Those who are diseased. Those who are hurting. In fact, the miraculous power Jesus is wielding, Luke tells us, is so tangibly palpable to all that everyone, can you picture it, is just straining. They're straining just to be able to make physical contact with him. And it's in the midst of this, in, in the midst of this incredible manifestation of the touch of the divine, in the midst of these signs and wonders of the hope and renewal by the hand of God, even as this surging crowd before him is no doubt listening in, it's in this moment that Jesus turns and addresses his disciples directly. And what results, you heard it, is what amounts to Jesus' State of the Union Address. It's what's often called the Sermon on the Plain. And astute observers will notice this teaching sounds similar to what is more famously known as the Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew's Gospel. And while there are some noticeable differences 
between these two teachings, both accounts are likely to be recordings of the same sermon. We ought to view the variance between the two versions as the difference between two students taking notes on the same lecture. Matthew's version is a first-hand account. As one of the original 12 apostles, he heard these words straight from the horse's mouth. Whereas Luke's reconstruction of this message is from second-hand research. Second-hand research that he's done talking with those like Matthew who were there in person when this sermon was originally delivered. Now, we're going to be looking at this foundational teaching by Jesus over the next couple of weeks. Today, we're going to focus on what have come to be called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, statements that begin with, blessed are you. Now, again, if you're comparing, unlike Matthew's version in which there are eight Beatitudes, Luke condenses the list of those who are blessed down to four. Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are hated and rejected. But something else you might notice is Luke also strips away Matthew's added description of such people. We don't have Matthew's blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and so forth. What Luke does here, and I think it's very interesting, is Luke removes our ability to over-spiritualize the conditions of poverty, of hunger, of grief and persecution, and instead sets Jesus' promises within the harsh, physical, economic, material, and social realities of a broken world. And even more than this, and again, unlike Matthew, Luke records Jesus doesn't just teach who is blessed, Jesus also declares the counterbalance. Those who are in misery, those whose lives are steeped in woe and regret. And if you were paying attention, this list of people may surprise us. It certainly would have surprised anyone back in Jesus' day who, wanted, who would have wanted to put themselves in one of those groupings. Then and now, we typically don't associate the rich, the well-fed, the entertained, and the admired with being unhappy or finding themselves in woe. And while we're at it, if we're honest, we don't normally consider being poor, being hungry, being brokenhearted, or being persecuted as a state of blessedness, do we? So as we scratch our heads and look at this, hear this, we might be tempted to receive what Jesus is saying here as a list of virtues and vices. I mean, on the surface, as we hear Jesus declare, these sorts of people are blessed, whereas these types of folks are to be despaired, We might easily conclude Jesus' point is become like the first group of people. However, these are not a set of instructions. You'll notice Jesus doesn't direct us to go out and execute plans for becoming poor, for starving ourselves, for making ourselves weep, or doing something in order to get persecuted. If the foundation of the Christian faith is there is nothing we can do 
to earn or merit the Lord's blessing, but instead we are blessed solely by the grace of God, then it follows Jesus isn't giving us a how-to lesson for being blessed. Furthermore, if the good news of the gospel is there will be an end to all of our troubles, end to all of the troubles of this world, that there will be, according to the book of Revelation, a time when there is no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain, then Jesus isn't declaring some virtue, some virtue to be found in the condition of either being poor, hungry, grief-stricken, or abused. A little detail Luke emphasizes is how Jesus came down from the mountainside and he writes, stood on a level place among those gathered. And I like to think that what Luke is getting at by pointing out this little detail is that Jesus put himself on an equal footing with those around him. In other words, through this teaching, Jesus isn't so much giving those who follow him a prescription for how to live as he is leveling with us giving a description and acknowledgement the truth about the way life is, about the way life can be in a broken world. The gospel does not romanticize the realities of poverty, of hunger, grief, and oppression. No, the gospel acknowledges these are the distinctive marks. Poverty, hunger, grief, oppression. These are the distinctive marks of things, of life not being the way it's supposed to be. It is in the light of this acknowledgement of sin, of a fractured creation, that the gospel proclaims the arrival of a God who comes down in person to set things right. To reverse the mess we've made of our lives, our resources, our relationships, our communities, this planet. So again, Jesus isn't telling us here how to be blessed. Jesus is reorienting our perception contrary to popular understanding of who can be blessed. In a world where we regularly define, regularly define blessed as being a winner, blessed as being successful, blessed as being rich, blessed as being well-fed, blessed as being comfortable, blessed as being esteemed by others. Jesus declares those we frequently label as the losers, the unsuccessful, the poor, the hungry, the grieving, the ill-reputed. Jesus declares they're included, not cut off, not removed from the blessings God seeks to give. And you'll notice Jesus isn't giving these statements to his disciples in abstraction, right? With a large crowd of people in need surrounding them, we can picture Jesus motioning towards those gathered, Jew and Gentile alike, as he declares, people like this, the have-nots, the disenfranchised, the famished, the heartbroken, the wounded, they can, they are to be blessed. But Jesus isn't preaching moralism here. Jesus isn't offering some vague future promise of hope. Jesus isn't simply declaring, hey, 
It's okay if you're poor. It's okay if you're hungry. It's okay if you're grieving or persecuted because someday, someday, ultimately, you'll be blessed. No, notice the blessings and the woes Jesus proclaimed are anchored in the present tense. And what's crazy, little sidebar in getting into language here, is some translations are so uncomfortable with that, they try to put it into the future tense. But the original language is Jesus proclaims these blessings and woes in the present tense. These are not only promises of being blessed in the end, the great reckoning of all accounts, but these are promises of being blessed here and now. And Jesus backs up this talk with his walk, right? He backs up this talk with his walk through visible, practical action, both in this moment and as we watch Jesus go forward. For as followers of Jesus, as we go through the Gospels, what do we witness Jesus do? What do we see? We witness Jesus again and again bringing relief to those who are languishing in poverty, to those who find themselves powerless, We witness Jesus again and again satisfy the hungry, both with tangible food, loaves and fishes, anyone? As well as laying a foundation of hospitality and meal sharing that demonstrates there is more than enough room at the table for all. For those who mourn and weep in the face of loss, even death itself, we witness Jesus again and again bringing hope and healing. And for those who have been punitively isolated or condemned as unworthy, even untouchable, we witness Jesus again and again crossing lines, tearing down borders, and taking the alienated by the hand and leading them back into fellowship and community. Jesus walks the talk. The talk, just as a reminder, he gives directly specifically to his disciples. The talk he gives to those who profess to follow him. My point is, Jesus isn't just doing this all for show. Jesus is modeling. Jesus is inviting those who follow him to go and do likewise. To go and do likewise. Not to hand those in need those struggling with poverty, hunger, grief, or from abuse, not to hand those in need some pie-in-the-sky spiritual platitudes of everything happens for a reason. Or God will never give you more than you can handle. Or, well, when God closes a door, he opens up a window. Beyond the fact that Jesus never said any of those things, I repeat, any of those things, what Jesus did say The truth and promises he did proclaim, he commands those who follow him not just to repeat with words, but to embody through their deeds. In the thick of a world, in the thick of a persistent mindset of labeling, and by labeling, dividing, and therefore treating people as either winners or losers, We, as disciples of Christ, are to reflect and implement a dramatically different way, the way of Jesus. 
We are to share, we are to practice, both in word and deed, a better word. The true word, the good news of the gospel, that no one, no one is cut off from the love, mercy, and grace of God. And we are to live out the values of the kingdom of heaven, the way of Jesus. We are to live these things out, not to be blessed, but because we are blessed. We are to live out the values of the kingdom of heaven, not to secure our salvation, but because our salvation is secure. We are to live out the values of the kingdom of heaven, the way of Jesus, not to do good, not to feel good about ourselves, but because God is good. Because God's goodness is not reserved for the few, but for the many. Not for those who deserve it or earn it, but for all of us. All of us who cannot earn, who do not deserve anything on our own. And this brings us to the woes Jesus proclaims. Those woes expressed for the rich, the well-fed, the entertained, and the admired. And those woes sure make us nervous. Those woes sure make us nervous. They make us nervous because Jesus, Jesus seemingly condemns our very definition of the good life. Jesus seemingly condemns the goals that most of us strive towards. Is Jesus condemning having wealth? Is Jesus condemning eating well? Is Jesus condemning laughter and entertainment? Enjoying life? Is Jesus condemning gaining respect and recognition? Are those who have inherently cursed because they are not have-nots? Again, if Jesus' teaching here is not a prescription of do's and don'ts, then the answer is, of course not. But before we all breathe a collective sigh of relief, if Jesus' teaching is rather a description of how things work in a broken world apart from God, then we ought to hear these, these woes as more of a caution as less of a pronouncement and more of Jesus trying to get our attention. Again, let's be real clear. Jesus is not declaring if we're rich, if we're well-fed, if we're loving life, if we're enjoying the admiration of others, Jesus is not declaring, well, then we can't follow him. No. Jesus is warning us to be careful because these things, being rich, well-fed, loving life, enjoying the admiration of others, Jesus is warning us to be careful because these things, these very conditions, can make following him more challenging, more difficult. Once again, you see it? Jesus is revealing, acknowledging something that's unfortunately true in this fractured world of ours. The reason why some of us need to watch out and take care, the reason why some of us ought to be pitied, 
is when being wealthy, eating well, enjoying life, and having others speak well of us, when these things falsely lead us to believe we're self-made. We're self-sufficient. And let's be honest. Those who are well-off materially easily can be tempted to believe they have all they need. Perceiving themselves as self-sufficient, self-reliant, such persons as Jesus describes already have received their comfort and consolation. Cocooning themselves both from our universal need for God, but cocooning themselves from our shared connection, our mutual responsibility and accountability to each other as humankind. I am my brother and sister's keeper. My brother and sister is the keeper of me. Cocooning themselves from, again, that universal need for God and universal need for their fellow man, such people are to be pitied because not only have they falsely convinced themselves they lack nothing, but as Jesus says, when they inevitably go hungry, when they unavoidably confront loss and mourning, they will have cut themselves off from the satisfaction and healing, the blessedness that God in Christ graciously extends to all. You've heard this before. We've heard this together. But when we believe this life is all that matters, when we believe our identity, who we are, when we believe our destiny, where we are going, is a result of what we earn, what we consume, what we accomplish. All of those very things, what we perceive we've earned, what we consume, whatever we think we've accomplished, those things will become distractions. They will become obstacles. They will become hindrances from seeking and abiding in the Lord from following Christ. Our rest won't be in Jesus. It'll be on the couch. Our contentment will not be in the depths of the word of God, the unchanging character of Christ. Our contentment will be in whatever momentarily entertains us, whatever provides our next fix or hit. And our sense of purpose and direction won't emerge from regularly checking in through the Spirit in prayer our sense of purpose and direction will come from whatever's trending on social media, from whatever the cynical talking heads tell us we ought to think and feel. Part of the reason why Jesus offers this caution, part of the reason this warning needs to be given is because what Jesus is declaring, the kingdom of God, make no mistake, is a realm in which conventional human wisdom is turned on its head. Beloved, it's actually a miracle that you're here. It's a miracle that you keep coming back. Because the gospel of grace goes against everything. Everything we fundamentally believe about how the world works. The gospel runs contrary to how we teach and how we raise our children. Think about that. The gospel runs contrary to how we teach and how we raise our children. The gospel runs contrary to the manner in which we construct and run our businesses. The gospel runs contrary to the ethics by which we build our societies. 
Because we live in a world where many continue to live and die believing you get what you give. You earn what you deserve or what you take. You work hard to get ahead. You work hard to get ahead. And if you haven't gotten ahead, then you haven't worked hard enough. You work hard to establish and prove yourself. Nobody's giving you nothing. And you're nobody unless you're somebody. You are responsible for your own happiness. These are the lessons we raise and teach our children by. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me those words haven't come out of your mouth. Tell me those have not been the filters by which you've made the choices to build your marriage, to raise your kids, to open up your business, to vote and build society. We live in a world where many continue to die living and believing these statements. Deep down, too many self-proclaimed Christians, despite what the gospel declares, persist in believing those who are poor, those who are hungry, they're responsible for their own problems. Get a job. Figure it out. Stop, stop sucking off the dime. Work harder. Stop being lazy. We continue to exist in societies where those who grieve, those who grieve are given but a moment to mourn their loss. We'll give you a moment but then you're quickly expected to get over it. Get over it or else you are going to be left behind by the march of progress. And deep down, too many self-proclaimed Christians, despite again what the gospel pro proclaims, persist in believing those who are persecuted and abused should have kept their noses out of trouble. What would you do to get into that situation? How would you find yourself in that problem? Despite what the gospel pro proclaims, too many self-proclaimed Christians believe, hey, if you're abused, if you're persecuted, if you're not willing, if you're not able to change your circumstances to stop being the victim, then you need to realize that where you find yourself is your own fault. <laughs> Guys, if this remains our mentality if we still are in any way buying or selling in any form a sense of self-entitlement, a sense of personal privilege or deservedness, if we continue to cling to the assumption to convince ourselves that this world apart from God is fair and balanced, that this world apart from God is equal and equitable, if that's where we're living, then what Jesus is telling us here sounds ridiculous. It's nonsensical. It makes no sense to us. Because the truth is, and I believe this is why Jesus says these words directly to his disciples, get ready for it, if we follow Jesus in seeking to enact the kingdom of God, if we follow Jesus in seeking to challenge the status quo, to defy the lines of division between winners and losers, to include, to advocate for, and to resource the have-nots, 
If we follow Jesus in living that way according to the kingdom of God, the cost of living that way, the sacrifice required in doing so, may end up leaving our lives more materially poor than rich. We may end up going a bit hungry in the consumptions of this world rather than well-fed. We may end up mourning the loss of creature comforts that otherwise entertained us. We may end up losing popularity, losing friends because of the company we keep and the people that we're willing to fight for. As hard as it may be to hear, and believe me that I know that it is hard to hear and as hard as it is to accept, while we may profess to believe in Jesus, while we may profess to believe in Jesus, great guy, son of God, yep, we appreciate all that he's done for us, while we may profess to believe in Jesus, if we aren't going where Jesus goes, if we aren't doing what Jesus does, we're not actually following Jesus. Because that's what following is. Following Jesus is going where Jesus goes. Following Jesus is doing what Jesus does. Beloved, we can say we believe in Jesus all day long, but putting our feet to the floor, actually following Jesus means embracing it means internalizing. It means actualizing his ministry and mission through our own lives. And that means we don't just pay lip service to the idea, but we practically, we tangibly live out of the conviction that all that we are, that all that we have is by the grace of God and nothing else. And if there is any part of your life, part of yourself, your family, your marriage, your stuff, whatever, any part of your sphere of influence, any part of it that you say, mine, mine, then in that part of your life, you are not following Jesus because to follow Jesus is to understand all of that, all of it, everything, family, marriage, job, person, gifts, skills, ability, all of it belongs to God. God has given it to you for his purposes, not yours. This means walking by faith. Now it gets real. What do we mean by walking by faith? It means walking by faith, faith in Christ alone. We throw that around as Lutherans. Faith in Christ alone. Walking by faith in Christ alone means not walking by the sight of our bank accounts and our portfolios. Walking by faith in Christ alone means we're not walking by the sight of our possessions, the sight of all our toys and our vacations, the sight of all our titles, degrees, performance evaluations, and approval ratings. Following Jesus means living out of the assurance and the hope of tomorrow, thanks to Christ's death and resurrection, and extending that hope to others, the blessings God promises today. The blessings that God promises today, again, a world in which no one is left without a world in which no one is left behind, a world in which no one is forsaken, where all are abundantly well-fed, well-resourced, able to laugh more than cry, and treated with dignity and respect. Because the same Jesus we witness acting with unconditional love and gracious compassion through a tangible ministry of presence has called his disciples 
to do the same. And the same prayer. This is the encouragement if you're feeling a little bit discouraged. The same prayer, the same presence, the same power that emanated from Jesus that was so tangibly palpable to those people that day. That same prayer, that same presence, that same power that emanated from Jesus to inaugurate the kingdom of God is available to we who follow Christ. All we have to do is make the time. All we have to do is create the margin in our lives for these gifts. And we will find ourselves not only transformed, blessed, we will be blessed even as we become a blessing to others. My brothers and sisters in Christ, each of our lives takes a direction. We're all going somewhere. We're all going somewhere, and sometimes we can think we're heading one way only to discover we're off course from where we intended to go, from where we're supposed to go. Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus? Is it our true north, our fixed position for regularly regularly reorienting and guiding this journey of faith that we're all on together? Because if we aren't living out of Christ's vision for our life together, the chances are we're trying to exist in an alternate reality. A life that will end up running short and proving false rather than becoming the full, abundant, and everlasting life we're looking for. There is much in this still broken but healing world in life on this side of our final and complete redemption. There is much we can mistake We can presume as the means by which to navigate the course of our lives, but all that glitters is not gold. And the gifts of God were never given to us as ends unto themselves, but always and forever a means for living and inviting others into the glory of the Lord. So instead of worrying about or obsessively guarding all that time, all that treasure, all that talent the Lord has afforded to us, Let us open our hands, even as we open our hearts, all the while never taking our eyes off Jesus. Let us allow Jesus to continue to teach us, to sensitize us, to empower us, to notice and to enter into those moments, both big and small. You know what I'm talking about. Those moments of vision, those moments of clarity, when the Spirit stirs our gut, touches our hearts, and inspires our mind. Those moments, okay, let's call it out. Those moments when we may not know exactly how to respond or what to do, but it's those moments when we know this is not right. This is not right. In such moments, let us walk and act by faith, trusting Jesus will reveal the truth. Jesus will show us the way. Jesus will give us the life we are meant to share in that moment with that person. In that moment, to that person in need, that person that Jesus has already claimed, just like you and me, is blessed. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.